Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, writer Jeff Sparrow goes in search of Paul Robeson in his latest book, No Way But This. Jeff Sparrow is a writer, editor and broadcaster and an honorary fellow at Victoria University. He writes a fortnightly column for The Guardian and contributes regularly to many other publications, as well as being a member of the three Triple R Breakfasters radio team. Jeff is the immediate past editor of the literary and cultural journal Overland and the author of several books, including Communism, A Love Story and Killing Misadventures in Violence. And today we're going to talk about Jeff's new book, which is No Way But This, In Search of Paul. Robeson. Jeff, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me. So anybody listening to your voice and if they look at your uh, photo in the book will notice that you're a, a white fella from Australia. So how did you come to Paul Robeson? Is it so obvious from my voice? Um, I was working in a left-wing bookshop in Trades Hall in Melbourne in the late... 90s and we were well being a left-wing bookshop we were always on the verge of going broke and so we used to rely a lot on donations of second-hand books usually from old members of the communist party or old trade unionists old lefties of one kind or another very often they died and their families were donating their libraries basically to clear out the houses and so part of my job was going around to these places and packing up all of the books and, and sorting them and of course I'd end up reading a lot of the material along the way. And it was really kind of fascinating because I've got a background on the left, but um, my generation of the left tended to be quite utilitarian about about books. So, you know, activists would focus on politics quite narrowly, whereas this generation of the old left seemed to me to be incredibly well-read and incredibly broadly read. I mean, there were often people who hadn't gone to university very often hadn't finished high school but they had books on philosophy and they had books on mathematics and they had books on cooking and they had books on all kinds of subjects and they always had books on Paul Robeson so you know I vaguely had heard of Paul Robeson as a I knew he was a singer I knew he sort of popped up on TV you know on the on the midday TV movies when you were sick home from school but I had no real idea of his politics or anything like that and I started reading these books in my job and I became aware there was this amazing story of this man who had been so extraordinarily good at so many things. And then I began to wonder, well, why is it that someone who at one stage was probably one of the most famous people in the world was scarcely known at all? 
so those were the two preoccupations of the book, I guess. Partly that there was this amazing story, but secondarily to to sort of examine the politics of memory, particularly in a political context, why certain stories were remembered and certain stories were forgotten and what the significance of that was. So the book tells the story of Paul's life, but also your travels, interviewing people that might have known him or knew somebody that did know him or certainly, you know, had some insight into into his legacy. And we'll talk about sort of both aspects as we go. First of all, let's talk about Paul's father. Obviously, like, Paul was a famous figure in the 20th century. So it's perhaps surprising to learn that Paul's father was born into slavery, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, and that was something that very early on in the project kind of stunned me that, you know, um, Paul Robeson died in 1976. Now, that's not so very long ago, but he was a guy who was alive at the same time I was alive, but his father was a slave in North Carolina. And it really struck me because I was researching this book during the period of this sort of upsurge of um, campaigning against um, police brutality in the US. And there were a lot of people on the American right saying, well, you know, why, why are people going on about racism in the US? The, the past is a past. It was such a long time ago. And to realize that actually slavery was, you know, only just over two generations ago kind of did my, my head in. And so I became fascinated with um, William Robeson's stories. That's Paul's father, nearly as much as Paul's story itself. So you actually, you went to North Carolina and you spoke to some people who were descendants of the man that owned William. What was that like? Yeah, uh, that was quite an experience in all kinds of way because I sort of knew that I wanted to, that was something that I wanted to pursue. I knew that very early on in, in the research process. And I, I started I started trying to make it happen when I was still here in Australia. And the, the family that had owned William Robeson was actually um, quite a prominent colonial family in North Carolina. And there's, in fact, there's a website where you can read all about them. It was set up for genealogists because there were all these people who were descended from the White Robeson family. And I originally contacted that website and said, look, I'm interested in this in this history, I'd like to come and talk to you about it. And at first, they were incredibly, um, you know, friendly. The whole thing was set up to, to aid genealogists. They said, yes, you know, we'll be glad to help you. And then they said, look, what's your specific interest? And I said, well, I'm interested in uh, William Robeson, who was a slave of the Robeson family. And then they just broke all contact with me. And in a way, I guess it made me more determined to pursue it because it brought home the point that this was still... Uh, you know, a ticklish subject in America to talk about um, the legacy of of slavery. So here was an organisation that was set up specifically for amateur historians, but this part of the history was something that they um, didn't want to pursue. So, I, I mean, eventually tracked down other relatives using a genealogical um, website and um, I went to visit them in a town very close to where the Robeson Plantation had been and uh, the women I, I spoke to were very friendly um, and you know they were, they were lovely women they went out of their way to to help me and you know offered me food and were very kind to me it's just that as the conversation continued and, and when I began to talk to them about race relationships in North Carolina today became clear that well specifically they talked about how they thought um they thought the, the changes in race relationships had gone too far, that um, African-Americans had become too militant and they preferred um, 
the way things had been when they were growing up. They spoke about how they'd related to African-American people as if they were family. And they said, you know, we would often call them aunt and uncle, even if we weren't related to them. And that really jumped out at me because I'd read about that particular town. Williamston had been a central point of the civil rights struggle during the 60s. And when I'd been reading about that, the points around which the civil rights activists had been mobilising was an end to segregation, an end to, all the, to the sort of racist laws that had prevailed in um, Williamstown at the time. But one of the points that specifically raised is that they wanted African-Americans to be called by courtesy titles. And they were sick of African-Americans being called boy if they were young or auntie or uncle if they were old. And so it really kind of jumped out at me. Here was something that during the 60s, civil rights activists had actually, you know, had faced down the KKK and faced down police in order to overcome. Yet these older white women saw this tradition as a courtesy. And it kind of really brought home, I guess, the difference between the way that African-Americans saw the past and the way that um, white Americans saw the past. And it, look, in some, ways, in some ways, that conversation was one that was very familiar to me as a white Australian. I mean, if you go to particularly Western Australia or the Northern Territory, you'll find very similar conversations with um, white Australians talking about how um, foreigners don't understand the relationships with Indigenous people. And if you lived here, you would understand how in the past we'd got on very well, but, um, you know, um, people from down south have been stirring up trouble. It was kind of analogous to that, I guess. But again, it sort of drew up how much past was still a living factor in American politics today. I'm Emily Mayhew. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So once William gains his freedom, he becomes a a well-loved preacher in various communities that the family live in. But still, he's he's having to put up with repeated humiliations, and particularly there's one point. Tell us a story about how he's he's basically sacked from one position. Yeah, I mean, this was interesting for me as well. I mean, before I began researching the book, I had a vague sense of American history, but I think there's a tendency to look at the struggle against racism in the United States as more or less a continual process that proceeds in one direction, that you start you start with slavery and then racism is slowly kind of fought and is mitigated, if you see what I mean. And, of course, that wasn't what happened, that the struggle goes in waves and cycles. And so... The period in which Paul was born, the 1890s, was really an incredible period of kind of racist counter-revolution, I guess, when the various achievements that African-Americans had won since um, the Civil War and since the abolition of slavery were gradually kind of rolled back. And the sacking of William Robeson was, I guess, part of that process. I mean, he when he was when he escaped from slavery, he was 15 and he was illiterate. He managed to get a classical education. He'd learnt Latin and um, ancient Greek. He'd become a minister of religion and he'd risen about as far as it was possible for an African-American man to rise at the time. But he'd also taken part in the protests against the racial murders that were happening in the South of America where he and many other people in Princeton had family. And because of that all, it seems that the um, the whites, who were the ultimate authorities in the, um, in the church in which he preached, had occasioned his dismissal. So he'd gone from being a uh, prominent, respectable and reasonably comfortable figure in Princeton to being, well, unemployed, 
and eventually he has to work as a dustman, uh, hauling coal ashes around town. So this incredible sort of downfall, I, uh, I guess, which is one of Paul's earliest memories of, of his sort of dignified, educated father having to haul ashes around around Princeton. I think that actually had quite a big impact on Paul's subsequent development. I want to skip us forward to Paul's university career because I think I think it's it's one of the sort of instances that you know speaks to the to the character of the man and he gets into Rutgers which is you know is a quite prestigious college and eventually he becomes a star football player to the extent that he's subsequently been in inducted into the college football's hall of fame and everything but again at the beginning this is a trial for him because clearly they don't want him there that's right. I mean, he wins a scholarship there. He's an extraordinarily um, gifted student. and He's one of the first African-Americans at this prestigious all-white university. But the football coach is aware of his sporting prowess as well. He'd been a star at his local high school, and he's invited to go and try out for the college football team. And when he turns up, of course, all the other players are white, and none of the other players will speak to him. And when the whistle is blown, they all attack him, um, knock him unconscious, break his nose, and put him in hospital. And um, while he's in hospital recovering from this, his family members go and visit him and he says to them look I don't want to do this anymore I'm sick of being brutalized by white people I don't want to play football anymore and his father says to him well look son um, you're not here simply on your own behalf you have to think of all the other African-American kids who want to go to college and who are never going to get the chance who want to play football and who are never going to get the chance and you have to go back out there and show that you can take whatever's dished out to you which is in fact what he does He, he goes back As soon as he's out of hospital, the same scene more or less um, plays out again. The whistle's blown. They all attack him. This time, however, someone stands on his fingers and tries to break his hand, and he loses his temper, picks up one of the white players over his head, and he's about to break his back when a coach says, "Uh, Roby, you're on the team, and that sort of snaps him out of it. And he goes on to become the greatest college football player of his um, generation at a time when college football was really the most prestigious form of the game. And it's in a context where even though he's the star of the entire competition, he can't travel with the rest of the team because all the transport is segregated. He can't stay in hotels with them. He can't have a drink with them. After the game, he's never invited to any of the, um, the formal social celebrations. And on the field... He's constantly a target for racialized violence. And, of course, this is a period where college football is incredibly violent. There's some extraordinary figure of the number of college students who are killed each year playing the game. And as an African-American kid playing amongst white players, he's constantly being targeted. But he's about a head and shoulders taller than most of the other players. And one of the things he discovers is that football is an area in which there is at least some latitude to... um, fight back and there's a great story about how very often by the end of the game he'd be lowering these unconscious white players to the ground and then saying in this sort of loud stage whisper oh oh I'm terribly sorry I hope I didn't hurt you there you know because he could get away with doing that when he was playing football in a way that he couldn't do it anywhere else. Let's introduce um, Essie Paul's soon-to-be wife here now they have I guess we could say an unconventional relationship, but at the same time, she's present throughout his life and career. They're together on and off right up until her death, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, as Lander 
is an amazing figure in her own right. And she just she was the subject of a um, a biography herself. I think came out um, last year. And in some ways, they make quite an unlikely pairing. And in other ways, they're very well suited. She's like him in the sense that she's incredibly. She's very high achieving. She's um, has a degree in, in science and she, she's a laboratory technician when they uh, meet, which is incredibly rare for an African-American and an African-American woman. But um, she's much more driven, I guess, by um, conventional priorities of success than Paul Robeson is, or at least more overtly so. I mean, Robeson was ambitious in his own way. But Aslanda was much more concerned about what people thought than Paul was. And in fact, if you read the Robes and biographies, there's a lot of Paul's friends who were very kind of hostile to Aslanda right from the start, who see her as incredibly uptight, incredibly snobbish, and, you know, um, not at all a match for Paul. Whereas I guess I try to argue that I think there's a way in which um, she and Paul become very reliant on each other, even when their relationship goes through up and downs. I think she becomes Paul's manager very early on, and she sacrifices her own career in order to um, ensure his success. And I think that there's a, a sense in which Paul really came to sort of depend on her determination and, and that which many of his friends saw as kind of cold calculation was kind of necessary for him to establish himself in the way that um, that he did. And she was clearly a very um, intelligent woman who became a political figure in her own right. I think that in many of the accounts of Robeson, she often gets a kind of raw deal. So in the early years of, of Paul's career, Aslanda and Paul are living in Harlem and the Harlem Renaissance is going on. So tell us what sort of things, both cultural and political, were happening at the time when they were there. The Harlem Renaissance is facilitated by the great migration of African-Americans from the South to the North. They're driven out of the South of America by racial violence and they're pulled to the North by the promise of jobs in the industrial cities. And by a sort of strange sequence of events, they're able to um, settle in Harlem in the middle of, of New York. I mean, in a funny kind of way, the, the dynamic of segregation allows Harlem to become very black very quickly because once some African-Americans move in, then um, you've got this phenomenon of white flight where respectable white people didn't want to live in an African-American neighbourhood and would leave. So you get this concentration of African-Americans in the middle of the um, of this enormous city. And so Harlem becomes kind of the centre of both black political and um, cultural endeavours in the post-war period. And there's a flourishing, well, of African-American politics, but in particular African-American cultural endeavours. And a lot of the African-American intellectuals at the time, no matter their political disagreements, agreed that one way that African-Americans could um, advance themselves was show their cultural achievements. And this was, you know, the great idea of the um, Harlem Renaissance by achievements, particularly in the high arts, like, um, like literature in particular. African-Americans could show that um, they were worthy or um, they deserved equal rights. And so this is the environment in which Paul and Essie meet each other, undergo their courtship and get married. And, I mean, Robeson goes through this strange period where he's 
graduated from um, university. He's a, he's a football star. He's known throughout America. He takes a law degree and then discovers that it's almost impossible for an African-American man to practice law. I mean, he, he does briefly practice and then uh, there's an incident where he tries to get a secretary to write down a letter for him and she says, um, I don't take dictation from an African-American man, though she doesn't use the term African-American man, and he, he walks out. So Paul sort of stumbles into show business more or less because there aren't that many other options available to him. He becomes a singer and an actor in the um, early to mid-20s simply because he's clearly talented and um, he's clearly charismatic, but none of the conventional professions are open to him. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jeff Sparrow. We're talking about No Way But This in search of Paul Robeson. And Jeff, as you just mentioned, Paul's career has got going. He started out as a singer. He's started doing some acting roles. He quite quickly gets some major successes under his belt and starts to get some leading roles, which is obviously an incredible achievement for an African-American man at that time. But of course, you know, the industry is dominated by white people, owned by white people. The stuff is written by white people. And so a lot of the roles that he's getting, even if they're leading roles are you know compromised would look quite racist from our sort of modern perspective and indeed at the time he starts to get criticism from the black intellectuals of of harlem doesn't he yes i mean the first major role he has is in the eugene o'neill play all god's children got wings and it's a play about an interracial relationship 
And um, as you say, many African-American intellectuals saw it as kind of demeaning, as um, sort of, uh, I guess, expressing the sort of conventional views about what an interracial relationship entailed. At the same time, when the play was in rehearsal, a uh, photograph of Robeson on stage with the uh, the other main actor was circulated to the press. And because it showed an African-American man kissing the hand of a white woman, the play became incredibly um, controversial. The KKK said they were going to bomb the opening night. A newspaper in Charleston said the entire performance was an invitation to a lynching and it had to take place with a, a guard of steel workers protecting the dressing room. And so this was the constant dilemma that faced. I mean, he struggled to get good roles, as you say, but the racism directed against him was so um, overwhelming. So you see this same dynamic occurring again and again throughout his career where he would be given a role that in many ways was demeaning or partial or minor and he would have to try and turn it into something else by sheer force of charisma. And even when he became a um, Hollywood star, one of the first African-American you know, box office draws, it would be the same thing, that very few directors knew how to, um, how to direct a charismatic um, African-American lead and there were very few scripts available. So particularly as an actor, I mean, it was somewhat easier as a musician because as a singer, he was he was less reliant on other people. But I think you have to say throughout his acting career, he very rarely got the parts that he deserved. Both Paul and Essie end up in London. Paul's starring in, in Showboat, the show that um, Old Man River, who's what becomes his signature tune, is from. And, you know, that's a success. He becomes quite a star in London. And they end up staying on for a few years. So how different is their life in London? They come to London partly to pursue um, the opportunities that are opening up for all there, but it's also that they see London at first as a relief from the the brutal um, racism that dominates, you know, Jim Crow America. Essie um, at one point contrasts the experience of being in London, where she could go to a fashionable restaurant and hear these elegant women talking about what a great performance Paul Robeson had just given. And then when they were back in um, New York, they would have to use the servants' entrances to go into to buildings. So in the early years in London, they more or less threw themselves into becoming part of respectable London society. And for a while, they were... They were kind of fated about everywhere. They met the royal family. They were, you know, going to soirees. They were kind of establishing themselves as part of the English establishment. And it was one of the real turning points in Paul's life when he discovered that, in fact, they had never really been quite as accepted as he thought that they were. Now, there's a, there's a chapter in this book where you talk about Paul's incredible affinity with um, Wales and with the Welsh mining community in particular. This was my favourite part of the book because it was a story I was not aware of at all. Tell us this story. Just to give the context for it, I mean, Robeson had had an affair. I mean, he had many affairs throughout his life. He had an affair with a, a white woman. He was determined to marry her. He, he came back to Europe to do this and um, she broke it off with him because he thought of his skin colour and that left Robeson absolutely crushed. He thought he'd overcome that and he discovered that in fact he was still seen as a second classer. What helped him recover from that was his burgeoning relationship with the British labour movement, in particular the labour movement of Wales, in particular the Welsh miners. And there's a great story about this that at some point in the late 20s, 
Robeson hears this beautiful singing coming from the street in London. He goes down to see what it is. And in fact, it's a group of unemployed Welsh miners who have come to London looking for assistance. They've been locked out in their village in the Rhondda Valley and they're, they're singing as they march along in their work clothes and their big heavy boots, those beautiful Welsh hymns and harmonies. And Robeson goes down to join them. He marches along with them. He joins in their songs. He gives them performance of some of his some of his songs and then provides them with a donation sufficient that they could travel back to Wales and um, feed their families. And it's just the beginning of, I mean, in the book I write about it almost as a, as a love affair between Robeson and Wales. He would go back and forth there repeatedly. Um, you know, he would give benefit performances for the miners. And um, in one of his better films, uh, The Proud Valley, he kind of dramatises a point that he he made over and over again in interviews that he saw this affinity between himself and the Welsh. He talked about how he'd grown up in a community of oppressed people in a small town where they'd taken great sucker from the church and from music. And he said that was the same experience in the Welsh mining towns where, you know, the, the mining chapels were so important and the um, and, and music was so important. So he saw some sort of affinity there and it was really part of the process, his process of politicisation. He moved from um, the United States where he'd obviously been conscious of the oppression of African-American people, but once he'd come to London, he began to see that um, the contours of oppression were somewhat different from those that had presented themselves to him when he was in America and that he saw the British working class as an ally in the struggle with which he began increasingly to identify. And, and the feeling was reciprocated. You visit Wales and you talk to some people about the affection with which Paul Robeson is still held in Wales, don't you? Yeah, look, that really blew me away. I mean, I'd never been to Wales before, but um, again and again when I was there, I would meet generally um, older people, but people who would tell me that, you know, um, when I was a child, my father brought me to see Paul Robeson and, you know, he pointed at Robeson and said, their son, there's the greatest man you will ever meet. And you would get this again and again. People knew the songs, but they also knew the history. And there was a sense of kind of, there was a sense of Robeson representing a notion of solidarity that had been incredibly important in Wales in the past and that people often looked back to with um, a degree of nostalgia, I guess that this was, even though the past in Wales had been very hard, it had been a past that had been alleviated by this sense of collectivity that someone like Robeson had exemplified. I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. And so if we carry on talking about Paul's continuing political awakening, what did the Spanish Civil War mean to him? When he was in Britain, he'd come into contact with uh, students, African students in particular, who were studying in London, and they'd talk to him about uh, decolonisation. So that had become part of his politics. But he also became aware of the political crisis unfolding in Europe. He'd been travelling through Germany in 1934, and when he was in Berlin, he was nearly attacked by some German stormtroopers. And he said afterwards that the incident had reminded him of, of a lynching in the south of America. And that convinced him that, that the rise of fascism was a worldwide problem, that it wasn't something that African-American people could afford to ignore and that there was, in fact, a continuity between that 
and um, white supremacy in the United States. And, of course, Spain, where a left-wing government had been democratically elected and then faced a military coup by uh, fascist generals, had become the great battleground against um, fascism. And that was sort of exemplified by the International Brigade, which was a multiracial, multi-ethnic army of anti-fascist volunteers from all over the world who had come to Spain to fight against um, fascism. And, you know, before I began work on the book, I knew something about the International Brigades. I mean, there were Australians who fought and died in Spain, but I hadn't realised quite how significant it had been to African-Americans. It was a sizable contingent of African-Americans who'd gone over there to fight against fascism in Spain. And so Paul had played a big role in raising money to support the International Brigades, but he also went over to Spain in the midst of the war to uh, support the anti-fascist side. And so he and Essie had journeyed you know, through a, a war zone to sing to these soldiers as they were going off to, to fight and uh, die. And I um, went to Spain following in Robeson's footsteps, and it was some of the most moving part of my um, travels, I guess. Um, I talked to an old man who remembered hearing Paul sing, and that experience had changed his life, but also... Um, in Madrid, you can see the um, the lines of the trenches where the um, fascists had been just outside the walls of um, of Madrid when Paul was there. And, um, you know, Paul had sung through amplifiers to the anti-fascists, but uh, the Republicans had also broadcast that into the fascist trenches as a way of trying to demoralise the fascist soldiers. You know, and it's a very kind of real example of using art as a weapon in a way that... I'd never really come across, you know, here is this guy whose his voice is being used to fight fascism in Spain, and I just thought that was extraordinary. So the Second World War comes along, and Paul is he's publicly supportive of the war effort in the US. At this time also, he has a big hit with Othello on Broadway and a tour of Othello around the States. But, like, not long after the war is when things start to go downhill for him, isn't it, politically in the States? That's right. So the other aspect of um, Robeson's politics is his enthusiasm for the Soviet Union, which he visits for the first time in 1935. And thereafter, he's a um, impassioned supporter of the Soviet regime and the Soviet system for the rest of his life. And that's a controversial position to some degree in the 30s. In the 40s, where, um, when the, at least when the Second World War breaks out, it's less controversial he goes back to the US and, as you say, he supports the war effort. And, of course, it's often forgotten during that time the um, Soviet Union was America's great ally. In fact, there was a rush of um, pro-Soviet propaganda that was being put out by um, the American government and the American film industry, this long string of kind of pro-Soviet films. So in that period, Robeson's um, background as an anti-fascist and his kind of democratic credentials make him a kind of... Um, both a, a popular figure and he uses his popularity to campaign against segregation and against racism, but it also means that um, in some ways his politics in that time are kind of um, in line with that of the American government that, that, that's using him um, to help win support against the, um, the fascist and for the war effort. Once the Second World War ends, of course, almost immediately the, um, the war against the Germans is replaced by the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And very quickly, Robeson moves from being, you know, public hero to being um, a public enemy. I mean, there's a, there's a famous incident where he um, is performing in upstate New York in a town called um, Peekskill, 
where uh, a local newspaper kind of whips up a anti-communist demonstration where tens of thousands of right-wingers descend on the, the concert grounds, you know, chanting anti-communist slogans but also anti-Semitic and uh, racist slogans and they hang ropes in, in effigy and he's very lucky to escape with his life. And um, from then on in, he really becomes uh, Pete Seeger, the folk singer, describes Robeson as the most blacklisted man during the McCarthy period. And it's very much the case. Um, the FBI makes an effort to ensure that uh, no venues will allow Robeson to sing anywhere, no record stores will carry his records, no theatres will show his, um, his films, he can't get acting work anywhere and they also confiscate his passport so not only can he not perform in the united states but he can't leave the u.s to travel anywhere else so there is a concerted and very deliberate campaign to silence ropes and throughout the, the 50s and for some years it, it's quite a successful effort and so how does he how does paul see out the remaining years of his life then what happens to his career after this blacklisting period i mean he continues to campaign to get his parcel back through the 50s he's called before um huec which is the house committee on un-american activities the the sort of major organ of the you know the uh, of the mccarthyites and he very famously gives a, a very defiant performance at huec they ask him well you know if you're so critical of the united states why don't you leave and he says because my father was a slave and because my people died to build this country and I'm going to stay here and have a piece of it just like you and no fascist-minded people are going to drive me from it. Is that clear? And it's just, you know, this sort of great moment that sort of, you know, really confounds the, um, the white senators who are interrogating him. And a few years after that, the political climate is shifting, um, the, the civil rights movement is on the march um, and, and Robeson gets his, um, his passport back he embarks on a comeback tour over the world. He plays Othello again in um, England. He, he, um, he travels to Australia, uh, does a very famous concert on the steps of on what becomes the Sydney Opera House site where he sings to the workers who are building that um, hall. And it seems like he's kind of triumphed and he's beat off the, you know, the Cold War red baiters. And uh, then in, um, in 1961, he's found unconscious on the floor of a um, hotel room in Moscow, having um, slit his wrists in an attempt to commit suicide. And from there on in, um, his life is never... That's really the end of his um, public career, that um, Eslander organises you know, treatment for him in various countries. He's subjected to very large doses of um, electroconvulsive therapy. He's given huge amounts of drugs... And he kind of recovers. He recovers enough to go back to America and he gives a few other public performances, but um, he's never really the same. And um, largely the rest of his life he's lived out in more or less seclusion. There are various other suicide attempts that happen, but from there on in, um, you know, he's essentially a, a changed figure. And um, yes, it's a very sad ending to his life. Just to finish it off then, so having been in search of Paul Robeson, having discovered him, what do you think Robeson's legacy is? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I, I guess the reason why I wanted to do the book, and I mean, this became even stronger with me the further I got into it, is I was struck by um, how much the the themes of Paul Robeson's life, I mean, the legacy of slavery, the persistence of racism in the United States, um, the effects of um, economic turmoil and unemployment, the um, relationship between 
art and politics, the rise of the far right, I was struck by how relevant all of those themes were now in the 21st century. In some ways, they're more relevant, you know, in the past few years than they have been for a long time. But I was also struck everywhere I went by the extent to which this was a history that was kind of largely forgotten, not just Robeson's life is forgotten, but, you know, the legacy of fascism in Spain was something that was largely forgotten. The legacy of the Soviet Union in Russia is something that most Russians know almost nothing about. And likewise, when I was in the US, Americans seem unable to come to terms with the legacy of racism and um, slavery. And so I guess the argument I wanted to make with the book is not so much that we can simply recreate Paul Robeson's ideas and his struggles, because we can't. They're very much part of an era that's past. But I think that we, if we're going to tackle those issues as we confront them today, we have to first come to terms with what happened in the 20th century and the way that those particular struggles played out then. And I think that it's only by coming to terms with kind of that buried history that we'll come up with you know, answers that can resolve the problems that we face today. So that, and I think that the, the story of Paul Robeson is part of that process. Brilliant. So I've been talking to Jeff Sparrow, who is the author of No Way But This, In Search of Paul Robeson, which is out now in the UK from Scribe Books. Jeff, thank you so much for telling me Paul's story. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.